Hey, parents, Greenlight is here to take one big thing off your to-do list, teaching your kids about money. With a Greenlight debit card and money app of their own, kids and teens learn to earn, save, and invest. You can send money instantly, set flexible controls, and get real-time notifications of your kids' money activity. Set up chores and put allowance on autopilot to reward them for their hard work. Then learn about the world of money together. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com slash podcast. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Welcome to the global phenomenon, Surviving the Survivor, where we bring you the best guests in all of true crime. This is a STS special, Surviving My Biggest Case. Here's your host, Emmy Award-winning journalist, Joel Waldman. What's up, STS Nation, and welcome to another episode of Surviving the Survivor, the podcast that promises to bring you the very best guests in all of true crime. And today, another STS special, Surviving My Biggest Case, where we interview law enforcement uh, officers, former retired ones, uh, about some of the biggest cases that they have ever investigated. And today, you're in for a treat with our best guest, Nina Hobson. She is a former British detective who worked covert operations, major crime, and close personal protection. She's investigated murder, rape, kidnap, and global fraud cases. Uh, she was also a bodyguard for celebrities and dignitaries around the world. And she's an ambassador for children's rights, driving anti-bullying campaigns and fighting for the protection of those who are vulnerable to harm. She is also a host of the new true crime podcast called Codename Siren, which I was fortunate enough to be asked to be a guest on in that episode is out. Uh, Nina, thanks so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. Um, and uh, thanks for coming on. I feel like we're seeing each other uh, every day here. Um, before we get into your biggest case, um, how did you get into uh, law enforcement in the UK? How did that ever come about? Okay, so I'll be brutally honest. I wanted to be a vet and mm. I was never clever enough to be a vet. I couldn't go to university, no straight A's for me. So my mum and dad were kind of, well, what else are you going to do? And obviously a young girl was like, oh, I'll be an actress. And they're like, hell no, you're not being an actress. You need a proper job. So one day we used to watch Cagney and Lacey all the time as a family. It was just one of those programs. And we were watching Cagney and Lacey. And I said, that's what I'm going to do. And my mom was like, don't be ridiculous. I went, no, I am. I'm going to be the blonde one. I want to be the blonde, pretty one. They were my words. And my mom was like, you can't just join the police because you've watched Cagney and Lacey. And I went, well, I am. And the rest is history. Wow. That's a great story. Thank you. Look at, look at that. Cagney and Lacey uh, in, influencing the future generation. So you... Uh, you, do you enter an academy? How does it work in the UK? Yeah, so very different in the UK to the US. So you go through a five-day recruitment process and you can be kicked out at any given time. And one of those um, days is, you know, the fitness, which back then, and it, sadly it's changed now, back then was that was my tough tough thing to make sure I passed the fitness because I wasn't, you know, the, the gym person. <laughs> I'm still not. And um, I had to run a mile and a half in 12 minutes. And I remember that we had to run around a park and I was terrible, but I seemed to do better than some of the other girls. And I remember going back and running the last bit with them. And I was like, that was one of the things that came out later. You know, you're a team player, you couldn't breathe, but you went back and helped the other girls to finish. And then you had to go through a... Um, like team building stages and uh, speaking, standing in front of everyone, speaking about a subject that they gave you. And then you had to go through a board of senior officers and then a medical. So it was it was a really intense process at the time when I joined. And, you know, everyone wanted to be a cop. It wasn't just a, I mean, there may be reasons you wanted to be a cop 
which was slightly better than watching Cagney and Lacey. But, you know, we all wanted to do it and we wanted to do it and we had a passion for it. And that was what I really prided myself in was this passion to make a difference. Um, and then once you were through that process, you went to police academy for six months and it was very strict back then. I mean, we're talking a long time ago. You know, we marched on the um, on the parade square every single day. We bulled our shoes. I mean, I don't think people even know what bulling a shoe is anymore. Um, what is that? Because I don't know because it's English. And make your shoes so shiny for yeah. inspection, like military. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Again, I actually didn't pull my shoes because I got friends with an ex-Marine and he was way better at it than me. He cost me alcohol. <laughs> but um, And then, um, you know, I everything had to be immaculate. We And then we were... We were adults, so obviously we were all adults. We are over the age of 18. We had to sleep in separate dormitories. We had to be in bed by 11 o'clock. We weren't allowed off the campus. I mean, it was super, super strict at the time. You saluted senior officers when you passed them in the street. Um, now I don't think there'd be many police officers if that was what they had to go through. And I actually nearly got kicked out of training because um, – it was the World Cup and everyone was allowed to join in the common room to watch the World Cup together. And two boys, you know, boys will be boys, went into the girls' room. They took my camera and back then it was the, you know, the clicky camera. And they found it hilarious to take pictures of their genitals because mm. boys are boys. We're in like a kind of like a holiday camp at some point. Well, I got hauled over the coals for that. It was my camera, so therefore I was deemed guilty. And uh, we had to, we weren't allowed at home at the weekends. I mean, it was like mm. punishment. Wow. Um, well, and in the UK, did they do uh, firearms training too? No, because you don't have a gun. So mm. um, in the UK, you only become a firearms holder as a specialist unit. And I think it's, it's 1% of police officers in the UK have, have a gun. And even wow. the firearms unit is kind of elite. It, as a police officer, I was never allowed to go in the firearms training wing and, and still wouldn't be. It's very closed off and very secret and high-end. Wow. So, so all your years as a police officer, you never had a weapon? I had a truncheon to start with. But when I started, again, showing my age, I wasn't even allowed to wear trousers or pants. I had mm. to wear a skirt, um, and which is ridiculous, you know, why, why we had to wear a skirt. But, and we had these ridiculous little bows that went round your neck. Um, and then one day somebody tried to strangle one of the girls with their bow, and that's when the, the, you see a cravat now like the checkered mm. cravat, that's when that came in because you could pull that off. It didn't wrap around the neck. So that changed wow. our uniform. But I'd been a police officer for years before I was allowed to wear trousers and I had to carry a handbag. So I did have handcuffs, which were really, you know, the old school handcuffs, not the tough ones now. And then I had to have a handbag. So the girls' protection was what we called a truncheon, which was about this big because it had to fit in your handbag. And, um, that, I mean, it was more used to swing a handbag and hit someone with that. But, um, yeah, for years that was how I policed. And then, obviously, as time went on, they allowed us to wear trousers. We got a side-handled baton. Um, and still, even in the U.K., you don't get given a taser. That's a specialist. Wow. That's a specialist role. Yeah, yeah I, can't, I can't imagine that in America where we've got like uh, paramilitary uh, police officers. I mean, there's a there's a synagogue down the street from me that has private security and they carry like long arms, which is wild. Yeah. America, America's a different uh, America's a different beast. Um, so obviously, you, ha you know, you've had you have a, a ton of stories, a million stories, I'm sure. Um, including being a bodyguard for some really prominent people, but uh, you wanted to share a specific uh, case. Uh, w when does this begin and, and how does it start? Okay, when you asked me the question about the case, it's a really tough question. And um, I've gone backwards and forwards because there's been cases that you remember for various different reasons. Um, and I, I've been torn about talking about two. And one of, so the one I'm going to talk about was when I was in child protection. Now, obviously, working in child protection is 
horrendous and a lot of people can't do it. A lot of police officers actually say, you know, I couldn't do that. I couldn't control myself. But I took pride in the fact that I could do it because I was helping these kids and somebody was listening to them for the first time. And obviously something like sexual abuse is a a secret offence. It's behind closed doors. So it's it's not, oh, there's a ton of witnesses. Um, and so I worked in child protection before I had children myself. And I remember someone saying to me, well, you don't understand this fully because you haven't got kids. And I said, well, actually, I, of course I do. I'm, I'm human and I'm a I'm a girl, and that was my mentality, and so I understood, you know, what was going on. When I actually, so I left and then went back into child protection when I had kids, and it was different. It was really different. It was, you know, when you did something in the day, um, and we spoke about cases that, that you'd covered as a journalist, you know, you wanted to go home and just pick your kids up and make sure that they were okay and try to not think of how horrendous the things you were dealing with were. Um, but this one particular case, it started out, I was a detective and I, was, I wasn't I was on child protection at the time. I was actually on regional CID, Criminal Investigation Department. And I had a crewmate and we, were, we did everything together. Um, and we were actually on call late on late that night. So not, every, not all the detectives were around. And there was a, a, a riot came out. We, we worked in a really very rough socioeconomic poor area. Um, and there was a riot came out on one of the, the estates. And so obviously uniform go, everybody goes and nobody really knew what it, what it was about. We then find out while this is all happening. Um, and now we're called in because, uh, one of the, the men on the estates, uh, and his name is Michael Thompson, and I'll never forget that name. He basically lived on the estate and what he'd done, he'd been befriended all of the girls he'd, he'd got a very young child himself and so his mo was to befriend the girls on the estate and get them to come and look for look after his child and at the time he they were looking after his child his wife who was not there and that's a, another story in a minute um he would abuse the girls on the estate and so this had been going on for a long time and he you know he would be the what you would see as a typical or, or society would say that he looked like the typical pedophile um and he would be giving the kids sweets and chocolates and ice cream and i remember it was the spice girls that was super big at the time and he was videoing the girls even while they were, you know, just dancing. And I say just dancing because to you and I and a normal person, that's all it was. But to him, he was videoing the tops of their legs or up their skirts because that was giving him his sexual gratification. So all hell broke out because one of the girls that had come round to babysit was a little bit older and he had tried to touch her breast and it hadn't gone down very well. And she had gone home and told her dad and so this is what was the result of her saying, Michael Thompson touched me. Um, mm. Obviously, dad pulled his friends together in the estate and they actually set fire to his house. So wow. then we, we get him out, um, establish very quickly what's happened. He's arrested. And then obviously. Oh, this, is, this is the father now or this is Michael Thompson? Michael Thompson is arrested. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, and we interview him and we, what's, you've got this young baby. He's a lot, he's a lot older. He was early sixties, but he had a, a child. I think she was two. Wow. Um, and he had married a lady from the Philippines and he, his, he would go to the Philippines every year. And seven years previously to this incident happening, he had married a lady from the Philippines. Um, while he was married to her, she wasn't able to come into the UK initially. And then while he was married to her, she actually had several other children during the time that she wasn't in the UK. And eventually he brings her into the UK and they have a baby together, this young child. What he does with her, he sends her to work pretty much 24-7 so that she is now out of the house. He's the stay-at-home dad, which allows him access to all these kids. It allowed 
the estate to feel sorry for him because there he is as a as a dad trying to bring his little girl up on his own um our wives at work trying to make ends meet so he he had it all very very well planned but once we interviewed him and he was very manipulative and pedophiles when you interview them often are um that's how they exist you know that's what they're good at that's how they get access to the children that they want access to so he was very manipulative in the interview but we eventually established that he's part of a pedophile ring which is actually based out of the Philippines. And we do a search warrant on his house. And we actually, so when we arrest him, there's tickets to the Philippines the following day. So he was going on his annual Philippine child abuse trip because that's what it was. And there was a letter. Was Was he going there to meet with young children? That's what he was doing or to bring them back as like sex workers or just he was just going there. He was he was going there to have his fulfillment of young children. And we recovered a letter that basically outlined that and said that whoever his contact was in the Philippines, they had a and and, and this is graphic, so um I do apologize in advance, but they had a seven year old waiting for him as his mm. pet. Now that's made me go goosebumpy and horrible because um I, i've got an image of of him and um it you know it, it was horrendous so he was actually charged with 13 offenses i believe so 13 different children so what happens next is we now and as a child protection previous child protection officer we were very highly trained in how to interview children And again, I I think the British police training is out of this world. It really, you know, everything is really done very high standard. Um, So we're trained to interview the children. So now we have him locked up. Um, We've calmed down the estate uh, and the parents. And now our job is to obviously get the evidence to get him locked up for for as long as possible. So the process starts where we interview the, the children and, and it's done on video. They're taken to a, what we call the the, the suite um, and it's specially designed with obviously cameras. We explain to them what they are and behind, in the room behind, there's two detectives who will watch the interview. You'll have an earpiece. So if I'm the interviewing officer, I have an earpiece and I start the process, but at any point, one of the detectives wants me to say something or change something or or push something, they'll talk in my earpiece. But it's very, very victim-led, as it should be. And you don't have they don't have parents in there. If a pa- if they're obviously they they're young, young, the parents can sit outside. Um, but the point is that sometimes children won't say things in front of their parents or in front of their close friends because obviously embarrassment, protection. Um, and it's very difficult to get children to talk about sex using correct terminology because did you, did you, a lot of... Did you have special training in how to conduct these interviews? A lot of it. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So all of us had um, very, very special training with how to interview, obviously, victims and then how to interview children and how to interview the paedophile. So um, we we all had that training and you could only interview children if you had that training. So you could. What's like what's the when you're interviewing a child, what is sort of the predominating you know, th- thought process in terms of the interview? What, what are you supposed to do? Are you supposed to ask open-ended questions and just allow them to speak? Or uh, what's, what's like the main crux of the interview process? Yes, it is. It's very open-ended not to put things into their, um, in their words or their brains and allow them to speak in their terms. But it's very difficult because sometimes somebody may call a, you know, uh, their private part, a flower. and But for evidential purposes, you have to establish really what, what does a flower mean? Because a flower to me can mean something 
I might assume I know what the child's talking about, but evidentially you have to try and get them to say the correct terminology or um, work out a way of establishing what's really gone on. And for the young children, you know, we'd get them to draw pictures um, and they would become a piece of evidence. We had, um, there was a lot of controversy about the use of dolls because um, kids play with dolls all the time and just because kids put two dolls together like that doesn't mean that they've been abused. But the the main way of interviewing a child is to very open and questions and then to home in on something that they have said. Now, it's very difficult as a detective when you're across the whole case because you know evidentially what you need to prove in order for this to go to court and in order for that person to get locked away. But you have to be very victim-led, um, A, because you don't want to jeopardise that court case, B, you don't want to re-traumatise the kids, which it, it is re-trauma because you're asking them to repeat things. Um, and people's children's reactions are very varied and some are very open and want to talk, some are very embarrassed, some don't even understand the significance of what you're trying to talk to them about. And so it's um, it's a really it's a really skilled act to do that. And just back to one thing, when you uh, refer to something as an estate, is that like a housing complex in the UK? Yes. Like a like a cluster of apartments, is that it? Um, it's no, it's more like um, streets of different houses. So, um, how would I describe it over here? <laughs> um, you know, you may, you may say um, it's like a suburb, I suppose. But um, there's a there's a particular what they call the estate is like. Oh, that's a really nice estate because those ten streets are really fancy. That's a not so nice estate because those 10 streets are not fancy. Got it. So this was and, uh, a not one of the nicer estates, I assume, or, or was it? Yeah. No, no, it was, okay. a, it was a really, really un, unpleasant estate in the sense of a lot of crime there, yeah. a lot of unemployment. So it was. So you that, interviewed, how many kids did you end up interviewing? I think we interviewed around 15 for that case. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And that can take a long time. And obviously, you have somebody in custody, so you want to talk to what's happening. Um, you try, and it's best practice with interviewing children. So the best practice is that you only interview them once because that's their first recollection. That's when they say things. But on occasions, we we have interviewed children more than once. And um, But when you're dealing with a number of children who are making a complaint against the same person, you try to just get their recollection and not cross-contaminate it with any of the other people that that have spoken to you. But I do remember that he was charged with 13 13 offences, I think, he was charged with of abuse on the children. Um, And then you have the whole court case shenanigans. And when you when you interviewed Michael Thompson, um, was he at all forthcoming or was he very manipulative the entire time? Oh, yeah. No, he didn't tell us anything. He had great stories of why he was doing things, why the kids had said things. It was because, you know, even little things like, oh, I wouldn't give them an ice pole. So they've made this allegation um, why he was going to the Philippines, obviously he had a Filipino wife um, and that he was leaving at home. Um, So he had an answer for everything. And it was the first time, I believe, and it's a long time ago, but I think it was his the first time we had come across him. Um, So he wasn't telling us anything. And now we have an international case because we have a a Philippine paedophile ring. Mm. You have him in custody, you do these interviews, and then what happens after that? So he kept, and obviously the process in the UK is different to here also, so he, we asked for him to be kept in custody, which you have to go to court for, and you either get bail, you can go out while the police do their investigation, or we can hold you in custody while the police do your investigation because you're only allowed to be in custody for 24 hours in the UK without being released or charged or 
said we're continuing with the investigation. So we did go back to court and uh, the next day, and he was held in custody, um, as in prison, um, while we continued the investigation. And so now we have to bring in New Scotland Yard paedophile mm-hmm. unit because they de- they deal with the international side. And so my crewmate and I were seconded down to New Scotland Yard for a while to work on this case. It was suggested that, and this is a whole different story because you now got to deal with the Philippines and that's a whole different ball game of corruption and everything else. So it was actually suggested that we went to the Philippines to work with them, um, but the Philippines would not allow that. So we, we didn't go. Um, so everything was passed to them about the ring that was there. And this was one of the things that was really frustrating for us as police officers. We knew that stuff, bad stuff was going on in the Philippines, but that was not our jurisdiction now. So the Filipinos had to deal with it. And um, we know for a fact that wasn't going to happen in the same way that it would have been dealt with by the UK police. So our role now was to concentrate on who we had in custody and protection of the children. And also, obviously, our our priority now is to get justice for these young kids because, you know, suddenly they've had somebody listen to them. And back to what I said at the start, I did what I did with the child protection unit so that I could let the children know somebody actually was listening to them. So we continued the investigation, lots of interviews. Um, we, as I say, we did a warrant on his house. Um, but it is a difficult case because it's one word against another. Um, and fortunately, he did have footage of things that he had taken of the girls. And, and again, Normal people would look at it and go, that's that's just girls dancing. Uh, that's just girls sucking a lollipop. But it's obviously there's so much more that was going on with this guy. And obviously he had progressed from filming the girls and that was giving him his, his kick to touching the girls. And so um, that was our our primary role was to get justice now. And what is uh, what was the age range of these girls? The age I think was six to fourteen, I believe. Wow. Um, again, he, yeah, and he's sixty something, early sixties. Yeah, he was early sixties, yeah, and his baby was two. And wow. you know, the the girls just went to his house because he was a nice guy, and they looked after the little girl, and she was sweet and cute, and. Um, they were so naive to what was going on until, uh, as often happens, you know, his his need and his level of gratification increased, which meant he increased his risk. So to now touch a girl who at 14 is more developed than obviously a 10-year-old, um, that was when he pushed his luck, basically. But that that's often how things go, you know, it, things escalate as, as an offender moves up the chain. By the way, whatever happened to the father that uh, lit this man's house on fire? No, they didn't charge him. They did arrest him that night. I think they arrested a number of people. They had to because it was getting out of control, but um, right. mitigating circumstances. And that's what, you know, I, I respect the police and the crown prosecution because you know what that's the least he would have got if it had been my child so you know <laughs> he's lucky yeah. that he only said yeah, went to the house <laughs> well we had uh <clears throat> a couple times excuse me <clears throat> on this show <clears throat> jody plowshay which is a super famous case in america uh 1984 uh jody plowshay i think was eight or nine years old and he was being uh sexually abused by his karate teachers, martial arts teacher. And he was then abducted, taken to Los Angeles from Louisiana. Uh, they finally arrested the perpetrator, the martial arts teacher, who was only 25 years old at the time. And they brought him back to Baton Rouge in custody. And Jody Plouchet's father, Jody's a man, by the way, uh, Jody Plouchet's father, um, 
was hiding behind a payphone at the Baton Rouge airport. And when they brought the suspect through the airport, pulled out a handgun and killed him live as news cameras were rolling. Uh, it's, they say it's the most watched murder because uh, it was captured by news cameras. And, you know, you can it's not pleasant to watch, but um, he was never charged, never went to prison. Um, he did pass away, but we've had Jody on and Jody's a big, you know, uh, spokesperson about, you know, for domestic violence issues and an advocate and uh, has really helped a lot of people along the way. And he wrote a book called Why Gary? Why? That was his dad's name. And that's what police said when he did it initially and they had to tackle him. But that's a, a famous story. And it's the ultimate punishment. But um, I'll tell you, I don't know. I have three young kids and if something happened to them, I do not know how I would act. There's a really famous UFC fighter in uh the States named Cain Velasquez, who's a beast of a human being. And uh, he got word that his child was being molested and uh, chased down the perpetrator and actually fired a weapon uh, into the car. He was chasing him. Uh, the irony is he could have killed this guy with his bare hands because he's a martial artist um, and, a, and a very big and, and mean looking one, but um, a sweetheart of a guy. And he spent, he was in uh, prison for many months. He just got out and they're awaiting uh trial to see what happens next. But again, uh, Dana White, who's the president of the UFC, a very public figure, was asked about that, about what, he, what does he think of his fighter doing this? And Dana White said, it's what every parent, you know, says that they would do, but wouldn't do it. And Cain Velasquez went out and went after the perpetrator. But that's a whole other topic, but to me, it's sort of uh, if someone's messing with young kids, it's it's, it's fair play, uh, as they say in the UK. But I didn't mean to interrupt there. So uh, no. you conduct these, <laughs> so you conduct these interviews, and uh, obviously the interviews with the children are difficult. Um, and then does the case sort of gain even more momentum, or where do we go from there? No. So once the evidence is gathered, and obviously the scenes of crime go to the scene and see if there's anything recovered, and obviously we got letters and various bits and bobs. So once that's happened, we as police officers then put our our case, our file, to the Crown Prosecution Service, who are the people in the UK who... Uh, well, it's the crown, you know, it's for the queen or king, sorry. Ooh, sorry, king, Charles, the king now. Um, and so then we wait for court. So at this point, there's a lot of behind the scenes work with really important people with the kids because, you know, going to court, and I've been to court numerous times. I've given evidence numerous times. I've been a support vic with victims at court numerous times. Um but it's horrible. It's a really not a pleasant experience. So a victim between now and going to court, the victims are being kind of counseled as in what to expect, not counseled as in what to say. But, you know, this is how it works. Now, for children, there's different um, allowment in court. So children are in a, on a, in a room that's video linked into the court. Um or if they're, if they're older victims, they'll be behind a screen if they need to, but children are, are generally behind, behind it. So no one's, they don't see the court, they just see the judge. Um, and the judges are also very highly trained in the UK to interview and deal with children. Unfortunately, not all the barristers or lawyers, as, as they're called here, are as sympathetic because you, obviously they have a, a job to do. They have to work for their client. But most of the time they are, are very, um, very well behaved with the, the children. Um, but prior to that, so your victim support are working with the family. We as police officers are still, you know, talking to the family, updating them of anything that we're aware of that's changing. The Crown Prosecution can be asking us questions and asking us to provide different parts of evidence or strengthen different bits. So the case doesn't just stop, but it, it kind of goes down a different road for a few months. And then when you get to court, um, it's the theatre of court, and that's ex that's what it is. And... Um, you go into court, people give their evidence, 
and your barristers cross-examine or don't, depending on what their decision is. And this case went on for several weeks. So as a police officer who runs this case, um, we're at call with them the whole time. Um, and when we get- and was, this highly, was this highly publicized at the time? This was highly publicized at the time because of the number of children that there were. Um, mm. But again, it was, we're not like America where we got cameras in courts and things like that. Um, but we went to court and on this occasion, so Crown Prosecution Service are known for having worse barristers um, and defence are known for being better because, you know, they're, they're paid separately and, you know, if you can't get a job, they used to say go join the Crown Prosecution Service. But your lawyers and your barristers are very different and we had, and I can't think what his name is, but we had the best barrister probably that I've ever worked for working with the Crown Prosecution. He was amazing. He spoke with all the children before. He spoke with all the families. He just got a really nice air about him, um, which is what you want because, you know, it is very stressful in that, that situation. The parents are anxious and not necessarily being well behaved um, because of their stress that they're going through. They want a result. They want to see this person found guilty. They want to put some ending to this case. And then this barrister that we had was amazing. And, and a lot of times you don't call the uh, defendant. You know, they, their legal teams will not call them to the stand for various reasons. Um, mainly you're going to say something stupid or that I can't get you out of in the end. But we went through the whole case and it runs that the the girls, so they, the two barristers will give their opening comments and, then the, and these were girls in this situation, not always girls, obviously. They then gave their evidence. Now, the court can decide that the interview that we did and and again this is things may have changed from when I did this but the interview that we conducted with the child could be enough that they just played that interview so the child isn't put through a questioning process so the judge can make that decision if however but the child has to be ready in case the defense because the defense have a right to question the children um if that's the case the video is played and the girls don't have to talk or the children don't have to talk but if the defense decides to question them um i mean you, you may have a young really young child there's no point in them being questioned because they won't have a clue so the video is very important um and then obviously the defense make a decision if they're going to place their client on the stand and this guy for whatever reason whether it was ego or I don't know what his reason would have been at all, but he decides with his defense team that he is going on the stand. So we were like, and we've all given evidence. So he's like the last person. And it's been a tough couple of weeks. <laughs> and I remember that our barrister stood up, questioned him. Hello, Mr. Thompson, how are you? Blah, blah, blah. Let me play this bit of video. And he played, and it was a shot from the knee to the groin, and one of the girls had a pair of, like, cut-off shorts, similar to what I'm wearing today. That And it, that was all the shot was. And it was a Spice Girls song, mm -hmm. and he said, does that turn you on? And the defendant mm -hmm. said, Absolutely. Like went into this total frenzy and our bar <laughs> barrister just went, no further questions. Wow. It was so impressive. I mean, it, wow. he knew that was going to be his response. And he got found guilty of 12 cases, not 13. Um, Why did he say yes? I mean, he just couldn't resist the temptation. He couldn't. He saw that and that, gave wow. his thrill um and so and, and you know that make you have to then understand you know this is not a normal person because a normal you'd go well even if that's turning me on i'm not ever going to admit it i'm in a court but he mm. his response was so automatic because that's mm. obviously what turned 
him on or one of the things that turned him on. Wow, that's really fascinating. And that's sort of ingenious by the uh, barrister to come up with that because it could have backfired, I guess. Um, yeah. You know, he might have sounded disgusted by this, you know, and and then who knows? But um, wow, interesting move right there. So uh, that kind of uh, sealed the deal. That sealed the deal. And I think there, there was but there was one girl whose case was kicked out. And I can't actually be, remember why her case wasn't he wasn't found guilty on. But that so everyone is obviously celebrating is probably the wrong word at the end of these cases because, you know, people's lives are affected. But, yes, they have justice. But you have one girl who now believes they haven't been listened to or heard or believed. And that's very difficult to then deal with because it's not about the person or their story or they weren't believed. And I can't remember. It's going to annoy me why she wasn't he wasn't found guilty on all of them. But you've got to then deal with that which is long-term for, like, why is everyone else, he's been found guilty against everyone else, but not me. And I remember that she, I went with her parents because the kids weren't in court at that point and went and told her. And it was just, they were devastated because suddenly you've now got to deal with that fact. And it's it's harder than, oh, no one, he didn't get found guilty because no one believed us, but you've got, all of those kids that have a guilty charge and one that doesn't. So, and and that wasn't something that was, you know, it didn't happen all the time, but it it did happen, and um, it was kind of hard to deal with that. And you're you're invested, and one of the things I think that sets me apart from a lot of police, not a lot, but some police for sure is. You, I get invested because I'm very. I have empathy is probably one of my strongest skills, whatever traits. Um, So you're invested and you want everything to be right for these people. You've seen what these people, these families have gone through. And it's, it's really hard because it's not in your control. You know, the minute we get to court, it's out of the police's control. So, you know, we've done the best we can and then it has to go through the processes that are set up for justice. And it's, it's hard. Uh, it's hard on you as an individual, but you know it's hard on the family too. But he went to prison. I think he only got 14 years. Mm. He didn't get, you know, very long. Because in England, our our sentences are not. That's what America does so well. Yeah, that's that's crazy that he only got 14 years because it was, what, 12 charges, you said, at the end? Yeah. yeah. Wow. Well, it's like, yeah. you know, a touch over a year, not even. Um yeah, and probably would have been out in seven. For good wow. Yeah. What, what, are, what are the prisons like in uh, in the UK? Are they rough? No, I mean, they're not rough like they they are in America um, yeah. at all. Um, what about the attitude towards uh, pedophiles in prison in the UK? Is it, uh, is it like here? Yeah. I mean, and that's I think that's a global thing because I, I worked in a prison in Australia. I worked in a high security prison and um, – mm. It, that was like a holiday camp. Um, you know, we watched movies together and we had popcorn and, uh, you know, <laughs> go play basketball. And um, But, yeah, I mean, paedophiles are viewed globally and even some of the, the worst criminals in the world um, and, the you know, the, the notorious gang members. You mentioned paedophiles and that, that gives them – that gives them the right to be angry and annoyed and not really think that they are a, a bad person because, you know, paedophiles um, are the worst. And But this, the sad thing, I'll get in trouble for this, the sad thing is that we, we separate everyone in prison. So they, and I had to go into prison a number of times to interview them because we go and interview them for intel purposes or a case that we're working on so and you would go in and they're sharing stories so you have a pedophile who maybe on the on the scale of good to bad was on the lower end but they've been in prison and they've got to share stories and contacts and so when they come out it's a different ball game and they all get off on each other's stories so you know for me I'm like if you 
if you're a paedophile and you've done whatever horrendous crime, you, and yes, you you might get a kick in, but that's so be it. When you when you do that crime, you know that that's your consequence. So, but unfortunately, or fortunately, whichever way you look at it, we are slightly nicer to human beings than we should be sometimes, and they are protected. Well, uh, pedophiles are definitely on the lowest rung. Recently, uh, the doctor for the women's gymnastics team, the infamous doctor uh, Larry Nasser, who was sexually molesting and abusing uh, those girls, was just uh, stabbed multiple times in prison. Uh, so uh, karma comes around, um, and uh, yeah, it's uh, it's the, it's the lowest rung crime I think that you can commit uh, in the states. So, um, is that how you then? Because um, I know you're an ambas- ambassador for children's rights, uh, and you're into anti-bullying campaigns. Did this help kind of motivate you to get into that? Yeah, I think that I naturally, you know, I worked with rape victims closely, and then obviously children, and uh, you know, children's everyone's best asset and should be they should be looked after and protected and when i started with the anti-bullying campaign it was around i mean i am shit at technology i've got about three followers on instagram um and so it's not my area at all but what i was seeing was the social media was allowing for bullying and the internet suddenly kids were doing things that they didn't really understand the consequences. Um, So I would get asked to do a background check. um, And there was actually a kid who was now coming out of college and had been accepted at this amazing college on a scholarship. And they asked me to do a background check into him. And stuff that he had put on the internet when he was like 13, he joined um, a chat room and it was just boys being horrendous about girls but there were 13 year olds but and he was not that person anymore um but because he had done that he lost his scholarship and so i i wanted to try and get kids to understand the consequences of what they're putting out there you know kids are putting less and less clothes on because that seems more acceptable but that also creates an opportunity for other people you know you're sending you're texting you're sexting and then it's like i had a i had a a case where um the girl's parents came to to me and said um she sent a boyfriend a text message of her naked and now he's sent it around to all the school all his friends at school and it was a case of well actually and i was in the police at the time and it was a case of well actually she's committed a crime too and they're like, what? Well, the minute that she sends a naked picture, she has sent something. That's her committing a crime too. So the fact that obviously you now want to, it's got upset and bitter between the boyfriend, they're both committing offences. And people don't understand how that all operates. So, um, and the bullying side of things, it became a 24-7 opportunity for people you know when before my age you went to school you were bullied in the playground you went home you went hung out with your friends yeah you might have got bullied the next day but you got a, a respite now there's no respite it's 24 7 and so that was the thing that kind of brought me into that and, and how did uh, your work on these pedophile cases how did it inform your own parenting once you had children were you uh as they say in America, a helicopter parent, were you overprotective? I don't know. Do you have daughters, sons? I have um, one each. And if you ask them the question, they'd say it's been a bloody nightmare with her. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I have a daughter and my daughter is now 28. And my son is 22. Um, but yeah, I mean, every Friday night, or Saturday night, we would sit down and I would go, because it was Facebook then, and I would go through their Facebook pages and say, how do you know this person? Well, right, delete. How do you, you have 5,000 people you don't know. So let's get, and every weekend we we would do that. And my daughter, bizarrely, when she, she was 18, got a scholarship to New York, to college, and we'd take her to the airport. And obviously I'm so proud, but devastated because she is my best friend and it's my girl and she's going the other side of the world and we're crying and everyone's and she turns to her brother and she said 
look, whatever you do, don't try and get one past mom because it's never going to happen. I've tried and <laughs> failed. <laughs> that was the moment. Was like, well. <laughs> but I as I say to yeah. No, I was going to say, I always tell, we have Phil Waters on every Friday. He investigated over 400 homicide cases. And I always say, I would hate to be your uh, child because uh, they get interrogated at the uh, at the dinner table. So, uh, yeah, it's funny. I was the son of a psychiatrist and a therapist, and I, I heard the crazy stories, but you're making sure that the crazy stories don't happen. That That's interesting. I didn't mean to cut you off. So did he, no, no. Did he ever get one past you? Oh, he's still trying. He's still trying <laughs> for sure at 22. Yeah, he's six foot four, flipping muscle oh, man. Wow. Yeah, he's uh, he's pushes the buttons, but he's not he's not done it yet. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Um, and uh, did your daughter become a veterinarian or what? No. So my daughter went to college. She went to the American Academy of Music and Drama to do music theatre. And was amazing and talented and then became an agent, talent agent. So she's actually my agent, which wow. is uh, very interesting. So, um, yes, when you talk to Amy on your emails, that's my daughter. Ah, and you can uh, at least you can trust her. That's excellent. Um, and she you know. rings me and says, hey, mom, I'm talking to you as your agent and then shouts at me. And then she'll ring me and say, hey, mom, I'm talking to you as your daughter. <laughs> <laughs> so you're, you're reunited with her in Los Angeles. Yes. So it's the, that's the reason that I came here with both kids were here. My son came initially to play football. He's at college in Arizona. And um, hmm. so I was like, well, I may as well come huh. join him. And does here he, I am. Does he play? He plays American football at the U of A? American football. He His English passport played American uh -huh. football for Australia because we have Australian passports too and then uh -huh. came here to to play. So, um, yeah, he's he's like, Mom, I, you know, I'm 6'4", Australian accent. Look at me. I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's a big deal to be a football player at the University yeah. of Arizona. Well, um, that's a separate story. <laughs> <laughs> that's big man on campus right there. You do have your hands full. Um, importantly, wh what advice do you have before we uh, wrap it up? I mean, what advice do you have to parents um, in this kind of new world that we're living in? Uh, like you said, where there is 24 7 uh, exposure and access to social media. Um, you know, I always have this conversation with my wife, um, you know, make sure the teachers at school are acting normal, make sure that, you know, there's, you know, nothing funny, nothing out of the ordinary going on. Um, we had a situation, I won't mention any names or even it was an activity where one of the people offered, uh, to come and get our kids. Um, made my wife nervous. Um, so, you know, you just have to be vigilant, but what advice do you have? Well, you know, social media has a lot to answer for. Um, and I, you know, people's reaction, if you think something's going on with your, your kid, um, it's, and it's on the, on the internet, the Instagram, everyone has a phone. Your instant reaction is to take that away. Cause if you take that away, then you are stopping whatever's going on, but that's not the way to deal with it because that closes people down. Kids nowadays, they'd rather lose their arm than their phone or their Instagram account. And so if they think that they're under pressure, that if they say anything or you know anything that that's, they're going to lose that, it becomes a punishment for them. So therefore they close down. So I think the really important thing, A, as a parent, and you, you said, you know, you made you feel nervous, go with your gut. If you think something's wrong, you know your kids, you know how they behave. Um, if you think something's wrong, then try and open up an opportunity of conversation because without conversation, it's not going to happen. And it may be, you know, I've got an amazing relationship with my kids. Not everybody has the same relationship. So it may be that there's somebody else. As long as they're talking to somebody, it may be a best friend. It may be a best friend's parent. Don't take it personally, but allow if there's a conversation happening for that to happen. And just be, you know, every now and again, just ask is everything okay? Because that's also something that we don't do. And we put a lot down to this is teenage behavior. This is normal. They're moody. They're grumpy. 
for whatever because they're 13 14 but ask because it may not be that and it may be that the child is just waiting for an opportunity to say something but he doesn't know how to um and i think as parents you know kids are a million times advanced on technology and always are one step ahead and i think that's an important point that parents also need to consider um but be a parent we don't need to be our children's best friends all the time because being a parent is a job and if you're not a parent you can't protect as a parent should protect and so that's my you know just uh, lines of communication are vital very eloquently said Uh, i gotta tell you i wanted to be a vet too but i was terrible at science it didn't happen um that would, would have been the one profession I would have loved. Um, yeah. what, what did your mom say to you, your mom, as you guys say, once you uh, finished the academy and became a police officer? Well, mom was like, my mom, unfortunately, she passed away when I, I wasn't very old, but, um, but I was in the police at the time, and uh, she was just the coolest person ever. And people would say to her, are you worried? And she was like, no, there's no point being worried. Nina's going to do what Nina's going to do. And, you know, she was she was really proud, and I, I have a picture of my graduation day, um, which I will send you because it's hilarious in my skirt and my hat <laughs> and my bow tie. Um, but she was so proud of me. But that was, you know, my mom was that person who said, do what you want to do. Um, would she like me to have been a vet? Absolutely. Um, would I? Yes. But um, I, I wasn't a actress, so that was a bonus. But um, she, yeah, she was super proud. And then I got injured And then everyone was to my mum saying, you know, are you concerned? Are you worried? Are you letting her go back? And my mum's like, it's it's part of the job. I'm not going to stop her. And I went back and got injured again, just a black eye. It wasn't anything major. But she was like, yeah, this is going to happen forever. Like she she was just so cool and laid back. And and you can't worry. I mean, if if my kids said to me today, I would like to go in the police, then I'll support whatever direction they want to do do it would i want to be a cop today in la hell no um, but yeah i mean because there's no respect anymore at least when i joined all those millions of years ago there was respect for the police officer and you know when you took a kid home you knew that was enough at times but there is no respect you know and I, it's a whole different show about how i think recruitment and training and everything has gone now but um you know, if they want to do it, then I'll support them for sure. Maybe. Well, maybe your your six foot four uh, son, if he doesn't make the NFL, he can uh, he can throw down some people as a as a police officer. He needs to we'll pick see. his grades up before we do anything else. <laughs> <laughs> we'll work on that. But uh, your mom obviously uh, handed you down. You inherited the cool gene. For those who don't know, Nina Hobson. She is a former British detective who worked covert operations, major crime in close personal protection. She's investigated murder, rape, kidnap, global fraud cases, and as you just heard, uh, pedophile rings and pedophile cases. She was also a bodyguard for celebrities and dignitaries, and she is an ambassador for children's rights and uh, drives anti-bullying campaigns and fights for the protection of those vulnerable to harm, which is very important in our society, especially today. And she is the host of a new true crime podcast called code name siren thank you so much tina love you america love you the uk love you arizona When it comes to teaching kids and teens about money, practice makes perfect. That's where Greenlight comes in. With a debit card and money app of their own, kids learn to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest. Parents send instant money transfers, create custom chores, and automate allowance, while kids track their spending, set savings goals, and practice money skills they can use today. 
and for life. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com slash podcast. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.